Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. This, uh, this season of my life has been uh, an especially challenging one, and it has been a really deepening one for me, and, and part of how the Lord has uh, really encountered me, it's been pretty aggressive on his part. Since the day that, that we found out Lisa had cancer, he's been waking me up every morning very early. And I awaken to the tenderness of his presence right there with me in the room. And each morning I begin this way. I begin with praise because God inhabits the praises of his people. And I sense his presence manifesting even stronger as I praise him. And then I, I begin, uh, my first prayers are always for Lisa. I start to pray for the things that I know that she needs, the places where I'm wanting to, we're wanting to see strength come and change happen. And then I pray for all of you. I pray for our church family, and I pray through different things that each of you are going through as I know them, and I pray for you in general always. But as soon as I finish, and I'm, usually I feel like, wow, I'm having a good prayer time. And, and all of a sudden, all this stress comes over me. And then fear comes over me. And sadness comes over me. And I realize in that moment, in his presence, I don't have the capacity for what's being asked of me. I don't have enough love. I don't have enough strength. I don't have enough you know, power over fear even. And, and as I'm, I'm, I'm sort of falling apart early in the morning, his grace aggressively comes after me. And I feel him meeting me right in the broken places as the pressure that I'm feeling reveals the cracks in my character and, and the weakness in my, my soul. I feel his love come penetrating and, and aggressively pursuing me. His grace is amazing. But it's so much more amazing when you realize how necessary it is. Grace is not amazing if you don't think it necessary. If you don't think you need it. But as I wake with him, and daylight savings time has kind of messed up my time with the Lord. But uh, as I meet with him, I'm just overwhelmed by how aggressively... He is gracious to me in my weakness. And these truths become more and more real to me. His grace is sufficient for my weakness. In my weakness, his strength is perfected. So I began to say, Lord, how do you want us to pursue Easter? And he said, I want you to pursue my grace. I want it to become amazing for every one of you. And so he showed me something new, a little different. There was a, a young man in Burundi who, in his teenage years, met Jesus. He heard the call to ministry. He became a pastor. And in 1946, he penned a seven-verse hymn in his tribal language called, Oh, How the Grace of God Amazes Me. And it's so beautiful. It comes from... Just a beautiful African perspective of the grace of God. And it has 
moved me, and I've been using it as my meditation from now till Easter. And I feel the Lord calling us to look at one stanza every time we get together. So this is the first stanza. This is his, his first verse. And he starts in an interesting place because he doesn't start where God's grace starts, but he starts where God's grace starts with us. You see, if it's not a personal encounter, it's not amazing grace. And so here's his encounter, this Burundi pastor. Later, this was translated into English, and this is the English translation. Oh, how the grace of God amazes me. It loosed me from my bonds and set me free. What made it happen so? His own will, this much I know. Set me as now I show at liberty. I want to use this stanza for three points, basically. First, just the amazing quality of the grace of God. I want you to see that today. I want you to experience it. But you will never really experience it unless you realize the bondage you have to be set free from. It's not just the initial bondage of going from being unsaved to saved or not a Christian to a Christian. But it's that constant saving grace from the bonds that show up in the pressures of life. Of recognizing its grace all from start to finish. But grace isn't just a concept. Grace is a person. You see, it's the will of God that Jesus should be the grace of God in your life. Grace is not a general thing. Grace is Jesus present with you and for you. Now, as we look at this together, I want you to think about this aspect of it being amazing only as it is a personal encounter with grace, only as it's a personal discovery of grace. Now, I love this African hymn, but the truth is, in every generation, some hymn writer or gospel writer has caught this and grace has captured them. In John Newton's case, he wrote the most famous song about grace in the English language, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. Even people who don't know Jesus know that song. There's uh, an English writer by the name of Isaac Watts who wrote, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and then he begins to speak about the, the amazing grace of God as manifest in the cross of Christ. And he says, Demands my soul, my life, my all. Or maybe when I was a kid, we used to sing this one. I haven't sung it in a long time, but it was a hymn by Charles Gabriel. And I've always loved the wording of it. He says, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, wondering how he could love me, a sinner condemned and unclean. Or maybe my all-time, I know I'm doing old hymns, I'm an old guy, okay? But my favorite of all time is Charles Wesley. There's a song called, And Can It Be? There is no greater hymn in the English language than this hymn. But my favorite verse, and it gets me every time, is when he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. 
Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, my dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. You see, it is for every generation to capture how amazing grace is. And really and truly, you haven't really lived till it becomes amazing to you. Now think about this with me. The concept itself is beautiful. Grace itself is a beautiful word. But a lot of times we use it interchangeably with mercy. Let let me just give you, there's a difference between the two. Mercy is when I don't receive what I do deserve. For example, by nature, you're an object of the justice and the wrath of God. And since we are in Christ, we are no longer under the curse. We're no longer under penalty of the law of God. So therefore, he has shown us mercy. But mercy is basically just getting rid of the negative. You can't live just with mercy, friends. The beauty is he doesn't just give you mercy. He gives you grace. And grace is the gift. The word grace means gift. It's without strings. It's without condition. It's without debt. As a matter of fact, some of us like to call grace the unmerited favor of God. Unearned, undeserved, but yet ours. Something you receive, not something you work for. Sometimes... I like it when we learn things by acronym, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. All right, so since I have the microphone, you're going to turn to your neighbor now, okay? If you don't have a friend, we'll match you up later. All right, turn to somebody near you, and let's say it to one another, God's riches at Christ's expense. One more time. God's riches at Christ's expense. So now you have a concept of the grace of God. And what we're finding as we look at this hymn together, look at what it says. It loosed me from my bonds and set me free. What made it happen so? God's own will. It's the will of God that you be free. Now listen, I told you that John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, but do you know of his life? John Newton was a deplorable person. He was a wretched person. He he ended up getting sold into slavery. He was a horrible, awful man. He got out of slavery and became a slave trader himself. I mean, he was, a, he was a deplorable human being who in the depths of despair meets the grace of God. That's why he says, I once was blind, but now I see. See, many of us think that's great. Grace is for idiots like John Newton. Grace is for deplorables like John Newton. I don't need it because I'm not like that. So it's not amazing unless it's necessary. It's only amazing if you're desperate. But see, John Newton's not the only one who met the amazing grace of God. Yes, he was a deplorable, and it did change his life. I mean, when he came to Christ, this slave trader became a writer, a poet, a pastor, a great man. I'm still reading his work because he's such an awesome writer. What an amazing transformation from deplorable to applauded. Now, 
lest you think it's only for those kind of people, gutter people. Think about the story of Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley was as good a person as anybody could be. As a matter of fact, he and his brother John started the Holy Club at Oxford University. He was the president and founder of the Holy Club. He devised with his brother methods of holiness, which is where we get the word Methodist. Okay, so he's the founder of Methodism. Okay, he and his brother John Wesley. But notice, even though he took orders and became a minister in the Anglican church, notice what he says while he was doing everything right. Why everything in his life looked like he had it together. I mean, who else in here can say he was the founder of the Holy Club? (laughs) And any of us take you seriously. (laughs) Look at what he says when he was founder of the Holy Club. Long my imprisoned spirit lay. When he was a pastor in the Anglican church, fast bound in sin and nature's night. It wasn't until God diffused his grace quickening ray. He called his life a dungeon while he was pastoring without the grace of God. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth. And follow thee. See, he had done everything he could do in his own power to be a holy man. But it wasn't until he encountered personally in his crisis the grace of God, which illuminated his dungeon and made his chains fall off. See, whether you're a deplorable like John Newton or you're the Holy Club founder, you are needing the grace of God. Because only the grace of God can set you free. Now, are you tracking with me on this? Jesus makes this really clear. And see, what, he's, what Wesley teaches us and what, what Jesus is going to teach us is there is a huge danger to being a religious person. A religious person believes that they can attain to the holiness they need by their own self-efforts. And so when grace is mentioned, it's resisted. Look at this story of Jesus and the religious leaders. I like it when you read God's word out loud with me. I know you're awake if you do that. So let's read this together. Will you read God's word with me? So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, The Son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So Jesus says there's two basic themes that he wants to get across to these religious Jews. First one is, 
You have to know the truth in order to be set free. And what he means by that is that there is some bondage in everybody's life that is part of being just a person on this earth, and that unless there is a truth that will set you free, you will be in bondage to that sin. He actually says it this way, if you commit sin, you're a slave to sin. You understand, a lot of people like to use this phrase, the truth will set you free, but it's not without context. He's saying, if you believe my word, if you abide in me, if you are a disciple of me, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That truth is never disconnected to relationship with Jesus. If you want to be set free, it's not just facts or propositions. It's a person. And he says it even more clearly right here. He says, if the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed. Let me, let me just get really blunt with you on this. If you have invested in the Roman Catholic Church to set you free, it will never set you free. If you've invested in being a Baptist or Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, if you've invested in being an alliance or whatever it is, it will never set you free. Only Jesus can set you free. See, hopefully that you're a part of a church or you're a part of this church that we point you to the Son who sets you free and we don't eclipse the Son so that you don't find your freedom. There is no church, there is no religion that can set you free. There's only one person. And, and, and as I say this to you, you might say, well, you're an awfully exclusive person. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. Jesus, looking at highly orthodox, highly devout people, said to them, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. He called them slaves. He called them people in bondage. And his compassion for them and his love for them would not allow him to just gloss over and say, isn't it nice you're religious? He said, you're slaves. And the only way that you'll be set free is if I set you free. So to follow Jesus, you basically cannot say he's just a good teacher. You can't say he's just a moral leader. No, he is saying that if you are not in him, you are not free. But if you are in him, then you are free indeed. Now, that kind of bondage that he's talking about was highly offensive to these sons of Abraham. They were mad at him. How can you say this of us? Do you not know who we are? Do you not know our heritage? Do you not know our biology? If you were listening carefully, though... Did you notice what they... We've never been slaves of anyone. You're sitting there going, what about the Babylonians? What about the Persians? Aren't you right now under Roman rule? Do you understand how being deceived deludes you? To where even the truth cannot penetrate into your life? See, whoever commits... A sin actually becomes a slave to that sin, so that then committing sin becomes natural. And it becomes the grid through which you interpret all of life. The grid of an orphan spirit, the grid of a spirit of slavery, a spirit of fear. And you see, every religious person has this issue, that they are slaves to fear, not 
sons, not daughters. And so Jesus comes after this bondage. Now, the disciples after Jesus, the apostles, made it really clear. This is the issue. Not only are we in bondage to sin, but sin destroys us. Paul says we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. What that means is that that death, that spiritual death, begins to be the way that we think, the way we feel, the way we choose. Our bondage is manifested in even the way we interpret life. We make bondage statements all the time and don't even know that we're doing it. Listen, listen to what people will often say. Why does this always happen to me? Why do I never choose the right person? Why do I always, why do I always invest in the wrong things? I mean, for me, it's going to shop right. Why do I always pick the longest line? I, I, I love getting involved in people's relationships, particularly in dating relationships. One of my favorite things to do premarital counseling and pre-premarital counseling and all of those kinds of things. And I love it when someone comes up and says, here's the list of, of the kind of person I want to marry. And I go, give me the list. Let me see. And they say, they say handsome Handsome guy, I'd like one with a sense of humor. A job would be good. Uh, you know, they have this, all this, this whole list of things, you know. This would be what my ideal guy. And, I, and then I watch the person, and they'll go into a room with hundreds of guys that all match the list. And yet their sonar of their bondage will find the one guy who will break their heart, cheat on them, you know, hurt them, do all kinds of things. And they go, why does this always happen to me? Because you're in bondage. Because the bondage is in what you, the way you think. It's in the way you feel. It's in the way you choose things. And until you start to say, I am in bondage, grace will never be amazing to you. As long as you think you can do it yourself, you can make it yourself, it is only when you begin to realize that this bondage of death is in everything that has to do with your life. See, David took a while, but he figured it out. See, King David, I mean, it's not just a New Testament concept, friends. It's a human concept. In in King David's life, there was no one like King David. The Bible says he was handsome. He was courageous. He fought a lion. He fought the bear. He stood up as a teenager to nine foot something Goliath and with a sling and a rock took down this giant. Everybody would have said, what a man, a man after God's own heart, the scripture says. He united the tribes of Israel into one nation, one powerful, prosperous nation. But then At the height of his power and his popularity, he was destroyed by lust and murder. So much so that Psalm 51 is his confession. Do you know what David, the awesome David, the king, said about him? From the time I left my mother's womb, I was sinning. He says, oh God, cleanse me. Cleanse me of this curse. Cleanse me of this bondage. You know the word, like in... In English, cleanse sounds like you could just do a facial, you know, like a nice facial, have a lemon peel or whatever, you know, or something. But that's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew is scrub me. Now, I don't know if this ever happened to you. My mother had this thing about dirt behind our ears. I don't know if it meant that we we were bad kids or she was a bad mom. I don't know. But she would bring out the the wash rag of punishment uh, 
for that, and she would start scrubbing, and there would be no dirt, no skin either, and it would be purely red behind my ear. But that is exactly what David is asking God. He says, bring out the pumice stone, bring out the loofah, bring out Mike's mother's rag, and cleanse me, scrub me, until this bondage is gone. You see, grace is not amazing to you till you realize how stained you are. Till you recognize how dead you are. Because, you see, a dead man cannot do religious things to make him or herself alive. So to the religious person, Jesus speaks and says, you have the spirit of slavery, which... Paul makes really clear that the spirit of slavery, that its power is in fear. And if you ever have been a religious person, you'll know that fear is the driving factor so that you can control people's behavior. Fear, guilt, shame, but they're all connected. I mean, think about this. Let me just give you a, let me give you a real practical illustration. There are people who fear breaking the Sabbath. They are so afraid of breaking the Sabbath that they literally have rules for how to keep the Sabbath. My favorite, there are 39 pharisaical rules for keeping the Sabbath, but my favorite one is always this. No woman may look in the mirror on the Sabbath because she might see a gray hair, pluck it out, and break the Sabbath. So precise in the fear of breaking the Sabbath. But do you know what the Word of God says is the most common command of God? Do not be afraid. Matter of fact, it says 366 times in the Bible, in some way, shape, or form, do not be afraid. Now, if you want to know the will of God, it seems like His will is do not be afraid. Since He gave you a do not be afraid for every day of the year, and He even included one for leap year. So if you are afraid of breaking the Sabbath and operate out of fear to not break the Sabbath, you've already broken the Sabbath because you're afraid. Because you've already broken the command of God. Do you understand? You can never be free by fear and you can never please God by fear. So Jesus says to the fearful that we would call religious He says, you're slaves to sin. You need grace. But here's here's the beauty of this. Jesus didn't come simply to give them grace. Jesus came so that we would know his father. He said, if you know me, you know the father. But here, take this deeper. Come on, grab this with me. Here's what Jesus is saying. God is who you think he is. He is holy. He's sovereign. He's awesome. He's almighty. He's all those things. But I want you to know him the way I know him. I have lived in eternity as the son of the father. And now I have come so that you can know the father I know. So much so that if you are in Christ, you are loved as if you were Christ, which means the father treats you just like you are Christ. So when you pray, he's listening to you like he's listening to Jesus. When, you, when you're in trouble, he comes to you just like he comes to Jesus in trouble. <laughs> Do you not understand how amazing? There is no religion in the world that lets you 
in any way approach God in this way. The Muslims say this is blasphemy. You can't be familiar with God. The Jews say this is heresy. You are taking the name of the Lord in vain by being so familiar with him. Do you not know they fear taking his name so much they won't even write his name and they will never address him according to the name that he gave to Moses for for his personal name. So fearful. Only Jesus comes and says, there's no other prayer that's ever heard. There's no other prayer that's ever effective except the prayer of a daughter to the father and a son to the father. You will not even be heard unless you are a son or a daughter. And Jesus says, I came that you would know the father and that you would approach him like I approach him with freedom. Here's how he makes it known. He says, you say that you're religious, but if you really knew the Father, you would know me. If you really loved the Father, you would love me. If you really worshiped the Father, then you would worship me. But instead, you want to kill me. And the fact you hate me and want to kill me is the clearest sign that you don't know God at all. Can you imagine refusing to see when the offer is the Father and all you have is some concept of a faraway God who you can never please, who you can never satisfy. And here is God Himself in the flesh saying, I show you the Father because I show you me. Do you not know that when you pray it's all different? Think about this with me. When you pray your prayers, the Father is listening to you as intently as he listens to Jesus. I can't even listen to your prayers that intently. You don't even listen to your prayers that intently. All these great mornings of intercession and prayer with God, I fall asleep mid-sentence quite often. I'm having a moment with God and then I'm like, And then I wake up a little later and I think, oh no, God, I fell asleep on you. He says, that's all right, you were tired. You were tired, it's okay. Do you not know what he says in Romans 8? We don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit helps us in our weakness that he intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. You understand, it's all grace. I need grace just to be able to pray. Every time I think I've become a great prayer warrior, he shows me again as I snore right through him. Are you hearing me? See, Jesus had to go after this bondage in their life. And he says, I know you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. And then this is the key, because my word finds no place in you. You see, you can never have the grace of God if you'll never make a place for it. Grace needs a place. And you have to be the one who makes room for it. You have to be the one who says, I will make space for your grace. See, this is what's so amazing about it is all these people who did all the right things and prayed a lot and sacrificed a lot and gave a lot and did all this stuff. They never made space for grace. They were trying to get a demand on God. They were trying to get, I deserve this God. You understand If it's grace, then it's not about deserving. 
If it's about deserving, then it's not about grace. You see, when you get angry with God and you're bitter with God, you're saying, Lord, I deserved better. Lord, I demand more. And when you, as soon as you say that, you have now taken yourself out of the realm and basis of grace for your life. And you've said, God, I want justice now. And you know what? If you wanted justice, he'll open your whole life up to you and say, okay, then you're going to be punished for that, for that, for that, for that. Because the Bible says if you broke one commandment, you've broken them all. There is no such thing as venial sin. It's all mortal sin, friend. Because at the root of everything that manifests in you is the sin behind the sin. And the sin behind the sin is you think you're God and you think you're ultimate. God is just there to equip and to supply and to be your assistant. And as long as anything in your life is ultimate other than God, then if you want justice, you can have justice. I don't think you want justice. I think you want mercy. And I think what you really long for, if you really want the fullness of days and the fullness of life, is you want the gift. You see, every time you say, I demand, you're asking for a salary. Every time you say, I deserve, you're asking for wages. Let me just tell you, what you deserve and what you demand will never be wages that will satisfy. I don't know about you, but I've never taken my paycheck and go, behold. But the Apostle John said, Behold what love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called sons of God. See, when you get your wage, you go, I'm, I deserve more. But when you get his love, you go, How could I have ever deserved this? And you say, Behold. That's where you make space for grace. If you keep demanding and saying, I deserve, you're not making space for grace. Everything then becomes a contest, a fight, a competition. You're warring against yourself. You can live in the area of the gift of God or you can live according to your salary. The one is supernatural and wonderful and amazing. The other is always going to feel like less than you deserve. Are you hearing me in this? So he says, if the son sets you free, then you're free indeed. In other words, what he's really saying is this. The freedom comes because of who Jesus is, and it's because who has sent him. I love John 3.16, but sometimes it's used in ways that doesn't bring out the love that is there. But here it is. Jesus is saying in his mission and in his action he's saying the father so loved you that he sent his only son there is no lack of love in the father the father so loved the world that he sent his own son to be lifted up on a cross and so believing in him says you receive everlasting life he binds his life to your life i I've come to understand this in in deepening ways. At first, when I first experienced this amazing encounter with the grace of God, I felt freedom from some of the sins in my life. I felt freedom from the guilt and the shame in my life. And I felt some freedom to change my behavior. 
But as I traveled on along, some of those, some of those old behaviors came back. And sometimes some of those old strongholds were very appealing to me. And so I tried to clean up my life and I tried to make myself better. I was so ashamed and I was so disappointed in myself because I had had these amazing encounters with God, but I was still attracted to things that I knew were not obedience to God. And yet what I began to realize, what Jesus is saying, He isn't saying that as he sets you free, that all of the worldly things and all of the the layers of connections to your, your pain or connections to your past, not all of those are severed all at once. But what he does is he takes you, your messy self, and he brings you into the presence of his father, totally messy, So that instead of it being, I'm going to clean up my act because I feel better, or I'm going to stop doing this because I I don't want this anymore. Instead, he brings you into the presence of his love, and you start to love him, and then you start to love what he loves. So that it's not restraint of behavior, and it's not just getting at the symptoms, but rather it's trans formative at the root. In other words, see, you could change your behavior and never get rid of your fear. It is only in the presence of perfect love that fear no longer has power over you. And so it's not, just, it's not that suddenly he makes you this strong, you know, completely obedient person. No, instead, he makes you you in the presence of the love of God. So that then you can be honest. Here's my struggle, Lord. Here's my weak place. Here's what I'm attracted to. Here's what I do that I don't want to do. And here's what I don't do that I really do want to do. And in his presence, the love comes into those layers and those places. And it comes in in perfect timing. And he begins to make you into the person from the core out that you always wanted to be. That's his freedom in your life. It is a continual contact with grace. Not just a once and done. Now, I mean, I I can tell you this from just being in the presence of love. It transforms you. I I am so, I know she's here, and I, I, I don't want to embarrass her, but my wife is just so incredibly loving. She has been loving since the day we got married. I mean, she has loved me even though she has known what a fool I am and what a a wretch I am and all of those things. But in the presence of her love, I have become a better man. In the presence of her love, I have learned to love. It isn't just, you know, because she knows how to complain just right or nag just right or or, or what. It's because she loves me. See, anybody can tell you what to do, but them telling you what to do doesn't change your heart. It's only in the presence of love that you can dismiss fear. And it's only encountering grace that fear no longer has a place to stay. He, in his presence, takes you from the spirit of slavery, which leads to fear into the spirit of sonship and daughtership, which leads to your heritage, 
to your blessing. See, I'll finish with this. The problem with most of us is we try to motivate ourselves or control ourselves with fear. See, fear is very effective for controlling behavior. If I can make you afraid of a consequence, maybe I can keep you from making that choice. Many of us as kids, what, we, what our parents did, what maybe we did as parents, is if I can make you feel guilty enough, go to your room and think about this. <laughs> think about it till you're a better person. You know, and basically what it did is the kid said, well, I don't like going to my room, so I'm not going to let mom see when I do this. But fear has never kept us from doing the wrong thing. Guilt has never done anything but limit us. It just destroys us. And here's the reason. There is no sacrifice or atonement in guilt. Guilt itself atones for nothing. I can feel horribly guilty about something, but it still happened. It still took place. So my guilt doesn't mean that it has changed anything. Even if I say I'm sorry, many of us have gotten to the place where we know people's sorry counts for almost nothing. Because they're just hoping we'll forgive them so they can do it again. Jesus captures this so beautifully. In the story of the tax collector, he said the tax collector came before God, beat his breast. And the English translates it this way. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Okay, that's a beautiful phrase, but that's not what the Greek means. Here's what the Greek means. God, is there any sacrifice that will atone for me, a sinner? Is there any sacrifice? Is there any atonement for me? I know how miserable I am. I know how wretched I am. Is there anything that will atone for what I have done and who I am? Guess who was telling the story? The atonement. The sacrifice was telling the story. He's the answer to the tax collector's prayer. There is only one atonement for your guilt. There is only one sacrifice that is satisfactory because in the end, the one you have sinned against is God, not me. And if he has taken the payment, then there's no other payment to be made. This is what I I hear the music, so I got to finish here, right? (laughs) But this is what gets me so excited. I feel guilt, don't you? I feel fear, don't you? I mean, I know I'm inadequate. I know my past. I know my secrets. I know all these things. I know all that. And if I'm honest, I know I can't atone for any of it. But here's Jesus who tells that story and then goes to the cross. And the Father who resurrected him from the dead said... The payment is accepted. The payment is accepted. The Father will never ask a second payment for what has already been paid. Now, I'm going to make you listen to one more thing. I hate Costco. (laughs) But have you ever noticed something? You have to show your payment to get out. I'm pretty sure hell is Costco with no receipt. You have to pay again and again and again, and you never get to leave. 
But you notice when you show your receipt at Costco, they say you paid and you don't have to pay again. Jesus is the sacrifice that the Father accepted. And those who receive his sacrifice as their sacrifice, the payment is paid. The debt is paid. It is finished. Will you stand with me? So here's what I'd like us to do. That's it. I'd like us just to say this first verse of this hymn together. I'm asking that it become your experience, that your bondage becomes freedom. It's not just a general truth. It's not a propositional. It's not even just doctrinal. It's a person. Jesus didn't say, I have truth. He says, I am the truth. When you meet him, he says, the one the Son sets free is free indeed. So will you say this with me? Oh, how the grace of God amazes me. It loosed me from my bonds and set me free. What made it happen so? His own will, this much I know, set me as now I show at liberty. Would you bow with me? Would you make space for grace today? See, anything that has mastered you, he wants to master for you. But only if you'll come and make room. He said, if my word abides in you and you follow me, then the truth will set you free. It's never apart from him. Would you let whatever crisis you're in, would you say, Lord, I'm in the house with my mess. But I'm in the house. And the Father's listening to you right now just like he listens to Jesus. Can you imagine? Isn't that amazing? That the Father listens to you like you're Jesus. There's never a prayer that you utter that the Father isn't intent on. The Spirit intent on. So would you say these words with me? Lord, Lord, I make space for your grace. I make make room in my heart heart for your word. word. You are my Savior, my my Lord, my my risen King. Sweet his presence. I know we have to go home. I'm hungry, but his presence is so sweet in here. This has been so personal for me in all four. Sir, I, I feel like my words are inadequate for how beautiful his grace is. How amazing it is. My encounter with it has been so meaningful to me. I could not have made it through this time without his grace. His strength perfected in my weakness. That even when I'm weak, I'm strong. I'm just inviting you into the amazing grace. Don't let it go today. We have prayer people that want it, you know, to pray with you. Sometimes you got to say it to somebody else out loud and say, I'm making this room for God's grace. And here's where I need his grace. So before you, it's just his presence is so sweet with us. Before you go today, anywhere that you want to go, God, I need your grace in this space. He loves, he loves it when we're broken and we don't ignore it, we don't hide it, we don't resist, but we come to him. 
Some people say to me, I don't want to abuse grace. Grace is there to be abused. That's what it's about. It's for undeserving people. It's always, in a sense, abused. It's for people who don't know how to do it right. That's the beauty of grace. There isn't a right way. (laughs) Everything we do is wrong. That's why we need grace. It's that realization. Don't let this day go without making that time, making that space. Lord, we seal what you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.